almost like forgot how to get on my radio show. I was over here uh, getting ready to do it, and um, I had a moment where I was going through the physical motions, like muscle memory of, of doing it, but it didn't look familiar. <laughs> and the, the the blog talk hasn't changed anything on the background. It doesn't look any different than it did before. I just had a had a brain freeze or something. I don't know. Anyways, um, tonight we're going to talk about expectations um, for the reader. And um, this come up because I have totally not got her name right on the um, blog talk thing. Let me fix that. Uh, I had a question asked on um, my site. Uh, and uh, I decided to answer it. Uh, okay, that's better. Uh, I'm sorry, that was just that was going to be really, really super aggravating if I didn't fix that. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I think um, stood out to me for this comment was um, uh, the assumption that the writer not meeting. Um, the writer, the assumption was, is since the reader was disappointed in the fix that she got, that the writer failed. And so I wanted to discuss that, and I wanted to talk about um, um, goals that uh, an author might come into a story with, and the intent, the intent that they have, um, and how. Uh, reader expectations can interfere um, with a reader's ability to enjoy something. I uh, I've experienced this myself, so I wanted to talk about that. But um, to the question, um, I have a link on the podcast um, for the whole question because it's kind of long. Um, but I'm going to read it out loud a little bit. Not a lot, a little bit. I'm, I'm going to read enough for you guys to get a gist of it, and you can go click on the link if you want to, or not, up to you. Um, there's an author I read who has taken the traits of lesser-known and fleshed, a lesser-known character and fleshed him into a strong secondary. He's a devious mastermind that makes the male lead seem like a stereotypical dumb blonde in comparison. <sighs> He's like that in all her fix, and some people might argue that he's a plot device that the author uses to bring the reader back from the romantic parts of the story to focus on subtle, I can't say that word, machination, machin, I've never been able to say that word, um, fuck it, uh, plans in the plot until the big reveal at the end, but I don't think so. I was always wishing he was a male lead instead of the pawns. Machinations? Mash in... See? It's just not going to happen. Instead of the pawns there is. So when the author wrote a story with the cunning genius character as the lead, I was excited. However, the story never gelled like her others. His interaction with the female lead felt forced and as if the author felt there 
had to be a romantic relationship in the story to be complete. I think his character actually suffered for it. He couldn't hold the plot and stay and stay the sly mastermind. The relationship with the female also seemed to blunt his edges as if he couldn't be him and get the girl at the same time. So now it comes down to it. Can what the reader has previously known as a secondary character lead a story without having to evolve to someone that is almost unknown or is this a case of an author who focused so much on the plot being explained that everything else faded to the, the wayside to get there so here's the thing <clears throat> you make assumptions about the writer's goals for this story um, your, your, your mastermind is uh, as a secondary character seems to be um, not necessarily the bad guy, not necessarily the good guy. I immediately thought of Thor and Loki. I don't know um, if that was um, where you were going with that. And I realize why you um, you masked the details of this so you wouldn't be bashing the author in question. And I really appreciate your efforts in that. Um, I also could almost stick Scott and Styles in these two roles. <laughs> where Styles is obviously the more interesting character in Teen Wolf and yet you know Scott's the lead but Styles leads the way in fanfic so I don't know and I don't even know if this is actually fan fiction. this could actually be something else entirely um, but I did think of Thor and Loki um, pretty much immediately uh, what you wanted from the author was a story focused on this mastermind, cunning genius character, uh, as an anti-hero, you you wanted him to not be in that role of of the leading man, but yet be the central character of the story. And the elements of a hero are different than the elements of a villain, and they're different from the elements of an anti-hero. Um, and you had expectations going into this story that the author had absolutely no no way of meeting. Number one, because she didn't know your expectations. Um, and it's perfectly fine. There's no reason for her to know your expectations. They're yours, not hers. And more importantly, uh, you let your expectations taint the story before you ever read it. So you went into it thinking you were getting one thing and you got another and you were immensely disappointed in it. And so you assume the writer failed. Now, I haven't read this. I haven't read any of it. I haven't read her work. So I can't say whether or not she failed um, in some fashion in the story. But you looked for fault. Because she didn't meet your expectations at the start. She took a character that she'd always done in a certain way and shifted him and made him into a hero, which put him in a different dynamic in the story. Um, one you obviously didn't care for. <laughs> and that's perfectly okay. You don't have to like it. Uh, but you don't necessarily need to assume that the author failed. Just because she didn't meet your expectations doesn't mean she didn't meet her own. Uh, and you can take a character and twist them, turn them just a little bit, and they'll still be the same, but they'll be more, they'll be different, they'll evolve. And when your character is static and they're always the same thing, 
then as a writer, you're not doing your job. You're, um, your your characters should evolve and move forward and and um, stretch out and be dynamic. And so for him to be stuck in this one position in a story where he is a central character makes no sense. When he's a foil for your hero, he has a defined role in every scene that he's in, and that's his role. He There's no... Um, expansion of his character. There's no definition beyond what he is doing to motivate the hero. Because a secondary character like um, like this is designed to be an external motivator. Their actions, their words, their beliefs, their goals are all designed to impact your main or central character. And when you take a character like that, and put them in the role of a central character, they stop being an external force. And as a writer, you have to explore their internal and external motivations of their own. What's acting on them? How are they going to respond to this? How are they responding to this woman in their life or this man? How are they going to navigate this relationship uh, do they need to make changes to navigate this relationship? Do they need to work on themselves and move forward and, and move past grudges and develop new grudges and make new enemies and, and make new friends? How is this person going to, to evolve into a three-dimensional character who is central to your story? And so... What I would say is is that when he was a secondary character, even though she fleshed him out and he was very strong, he still was secondary. Julie has something to say. Do you want to get on the thing? Um, I don't see your number. Oh, is that your number? Um, I thought you were in the... Is that a new number? You were in the middle, and now you're not in the middle. I'm, it's going to mess with my head. Okay, okay. It's going to mess with me. It's the middle of the numerical string. <laughs> That's not going to help. <laughs> you know, I had a mental trick. You know, it was an OCD thing. Or, or a I know. math dyslexia thing. Um, this calcula, if you want to be technical. Now I'm, now I'm no longer a an anagram of lady holders, very code, though. No, 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 no. But, you know, so... What was I saying? And then, then now I want you to talk about what you talked about in the chat room. Um, it's... Uh, you can't take a secondary character and move them into the male lead and leave them in a static secondary mode where they're providing external motivations for everybody around them. You you have to... The author has to open them up and explore them and move them forward. And that's going to, to change the character that's the goal. That's the purpose. Um, and um, Jilly, 
So I was just one of the comments that was made in the, in the question was about the question about um, how he interacted with the female lead, that his characterization seemed, I think she said blunted or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, it felt forced um, as if there had hedges. to be a romantic relationship in the story to be complete. I think his character suffered for it. He couldn't hold the plot and stay the sly mastermind. The relationship seemed, the female seemed to blunt his edges. Um, well, and that and there's a couple of expectations nested in that part of the comment, um, which is that um, it, it, there's 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 a kind of a, an implied thing in there. It's like why couldn't it have been a non-relationship story that this you know that the story suffered for it being a relationship story or something of that nature. Um, um, and some people. Some people are romance writers. Some people are only interested in writing relationship stories. So um, an expectation on the reader's part or a perception that the story would have been better without a romance in it, um, that's not the story the writer clearly wants to tell. Right. You know, some people write, want to write relationship dynamics. They don't are interested in writing Gen Fic or Case Fix or, or whatever. They're interested in writing um, stories that build a relationship. And when you're doing that, if you've got a character who is on the good spectrum, who's your, your, who's your lead character, um, and you're taking someone who's more in the villain type side of the spectrum, on the evil side of the spectrum, and bringing them over to put, you, he's not, he can't just be his villainy self and be in a relationship with, somebody has to change. Because you, her, somebody's characterization is going to suffer for those two coming together, if she's typically with the good guy, um, and now she's with the bad guy, whose characterization is going to bend? Because it doesn't make sense for her to be with somebody who's the villain. So if he were kept static the way he was portrayed, and she is kept the way she's portrayed typically in the story, then their their coming together is going to seem very awkward. He has to evolve, and. In that case, I would, would think, because when you take an evil character and you kind of at least move them into the neutral spectrum, you do blunt their edges, you know? They're not going to just randomly slip somebody's throat, you know? Especially if a relationship with a good character is an impetus for them because they would lose their relationship. So they are, you know, potentially not going to have as much edge. So if he was had the same edge and she was portrayed the same way, as she's been portrayed with the good guy, then her characterization looks weird. Because bad guys want the good girl all the time. They don't get together with them because it's just a, it's a clash of values, right? So if somebody's characterization doesn't change, their relationship makes no sense. And the what I'm reminded of... A... Yeah. I mean, I would hope so. What, what I'm reminded yeah. of is... Um, the movie Pitch Black. Uh, have you seen that? Uh-huh. Pitch Black? Okay. I love okay, it. Pitch Black opens up, and we have Riddick. I fucking love Pitch Black. I, I saw it six times in the theater. Anyway, I'd go see it again in the theater if they put it back. I would. I totally <laughs> would. Um. Anyways, um, the movie opens, and Riddick is, is portrayed as a violent, vicious criminal who um, must be watched at all times and is in these... Um, serious handcuffs and he's being brought back to this prison by a bounty hunter 
And a bounty hunter is seen as the good guy. They crash land on this planet and they get exposed to these monsters and they've got a plan to get to a ship in safety, they hope. Uh, And the good guy, the supposed good guy, has separated Riddick from the rest of the group and he um, tells Riddick to kill the kid for bait. And Riddick kills him instead. So you see a you see Riddick a certain way. He's when you first meet him, he's he looks dangerous and and you can't trust him. And he's he's not going to do the right thing ever. He's he's just not going to be who you want him to be. He's not the hero of this movie. When when you go into this movie, and time and time again, he makes decisions. That you don't expect him to make. And the good guy turns out to be an asshole who's willing to sacrifice a kid to live. And you see Riddick moving through this movie. Seeing something in this woman that he wants. And he's not, he doesn't know what to do with it. I mean you can see this this indecision where he wants to live and be who he is, be be who he's always been. But the other side of him wants to be her hero, and he doesn't mix. It's it's not mixing well in his head. But then when he gets there, and of course they kill her because it's sexist as fuck. Um, and a woman's always gonna die in these movies, and they all practically die except for the girl and the, the priest. Um, you see Riddick evolving moving into this direction. And so when you meet him again in Chronicles of Riddick, um you're you're prepared for him to have that that dual personality where he is a vicious killer when he's provoked, but he's also someone who's going to do the right thing if he has the opportunity to. And that mm-hmm. was the growth we saw in Riddick that we didn't see anywhere else yeah his, I think that he um, you're presented with a sort of a two-dimensional picture of Riddick and then his his he evolves and I think it's not just that he gets fleshed out as the show as the movie goes on um, you don't just learn about him but I do think his edges got blunted a little bit by because of emotional attachment because emotional attachment does change people to her and he was a kid yeah he he was attached to the kid i think especially to the kid yeah especially attachment to children and i think he was very protective of jack and um so when we meet riddick in chronicles of riddick um you know that Jack is going to – you expect I – when mean, he meets the little girl, um, the imam's daughter, I can't remember her name, um, you know he's not going to hurt that little girl because you already had gone through this progression with Riddick where you know, at least in this area of children, that he's got he, – he, his edges have been blunted and he's not the cold-blooded killer that people think he is. And um, so you go get to go on that journey with him, and so there's some things about his characterization um, – that you expect, you do expect, there is an expectation of his characterization 
in the Chronicles of Riddick because of what we saw of him in um, Pitch Black. And there's a lot of duality about him. You know he's going to take care of that little girl at the same time you know he's going to kill the people responsible for killing the imam. And you know he's going to go after Jack. And, I mean, there's just things you, you have an expectation of him in the Chronicles of Riddick that makes sense based upon um, the progression. But if you just, if you look at Chronicles of Riddick just through the eyes of what you saw um, in the first 30 minutes of Pitch Black, Chronicles of Riddick doesn't make any sense. No. And What's interesting um, about the character of Jack is that when you meet Jack, she's pretending to be a boy. And Riddick is the one that figures out that, in fact, she's not. Um, and um, when we see her again, she's evolved in Chronicles of Riddick. It's been quite a while. She's a, she's a grown woman. She's um, been through some things that have hardened her and changed her. Um, as she strove in her life to be like the man who saved her. In pitch black, she sought that out. She sought out that those experiences, and not all of them were good. Um, and not, I think not all of them were expected or desired or wanted or what. I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that she sought to make herself in his image, and got arrested and got put in prison in the same prison that he was in, and he willingly goes back into that prison that he escaped from. To get her. But what he gets back isn't what he left behind. He left behind Jack pretending to be a boy. He goes to get Jack and meets Kira instead. And no, I did not pick my name for that. (laughs) Different spelling. Um, Different spelling. But then he loses her again. I mean, he loses loses that, that almost. And it's not... It's not there. And even in Pitch Black, it wasn't there. He, What was her name? He was attached to her. He clearly wanted her. But the, there was no... The emotional connection he had with the children was stronger than what he had with the female lead in, in Pitch Black. And Fry. Um, Fry. He wanted her. He... Potential there. And then she dies. And the same same thing happens with Kira. Um, This is a grown-up, unexpected version of himself. (laughs) He doesn't know quite what to do with her. She's not what he left behind. Um, And he's trying to to connect and, and get that back because she was a success for him, something that he did in the past that was good. And and he wanted that goodness back, and then they take it from him. And then they take it from him permanently. So then there's another snap. There's another potential loss for Riddick, and you see him growing again. So your character has to grow, even if they're an anti-hero. But if you put Riddick in a situation where he is a romantic lead, 
that's a whole new ball game. That, that that's like apples and oranges. You can't when you put an anti-hero like Riddick in a position of um, earning the trust and love of another person. That requires growth and development and and movement in their life. They can't be static. They can't be. Um, he can't continue to be a killing machine. There there has to be movement. And when you look at Loki, Loki's the same way. Uh, but Loki Loki has a lot of blood on his hands. Um, and there's a lot of. Daddy issues there. <laughs> There's a fuck ton of daddy issues there, and I think that um, you, if you're trying to move Loki into a position where he um is in a healthy romantic relationship with anybody, man or woman. And I am curious to know whether or not, um, as a reader, um, if the reader in, in, in this question would have been, would have thought that a relationship with a man blunted his edges. As I notice in fandom a lot of times, if um, a reader prefers that one character um, ships slash pairings and there ends up a het pairing that the relationship is always considered inferior. So I am curious just to know if this, if this is actually Loki and if they would have preferred that he was with Tony <laughs> and he ended up with Jane Foster. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions there. But when you look at Loki as a character, he is he's not someone you can put in a relationship and leave him static. It wouldn't be healthy. It would be it would end up profoundly abusive in a number of ways. He has to grow. He has to accept himself for what he is and he has to accept what he's done and and even if he doesn't atone to an authority, he needs to atone to himself. He needs to reconcile what he is and what he's done and what he's responsible for. He has to grow. He has to, he has, otherwise the the relationship isn't going to be there. It isn't going to go anywhere. And um, if that means his edges get blunted, um, if that means that he sacrifices his plans, um, his goals, that's what you do. <laughs> that's what that that's yeah. how you live. Uh, I mean, and the thing is, so one of the one of the a couple of ways that um, I see people bring Loki into um, fan fiction. Um, one of them, and you see this, you see this in every any any fandom that has um, a villain, is that if, the, the pairing is a villainous pairing. Um, it's a villain with another villain, and I rarely see those done with with female with, with in hat. Um, I think it's because um, this is just a random opinion. I, I think it's because we don't do well with female villains. Um, 
it says seeing the evil mastermind, we just tend to go, oh, my God, what a bitch. Um, I, I think that's just the... Have, uh, you, um, have you seen Ragnarok? I have not seen Ragnarok yet. Me neither. But I heard she but, rocked it. You know, I've, I've, heard, I've heard that, too. And, I, and I, I would be, I'm curious to see it. Um, because I think, that, I think that fleshing out female characters helps on both sides of the fence with the good characters, the evil characters, the characters in between is you make them more well-rounded and we're less, we're more interested in reading them. But anyway, um, sometimes fan fiction suffers from the same lack of imagination that mainstream media writers suffer from when it comes to um, female characterization. But anyway, so you take, you, you know, and you just, that's, that's one option with a character like Loki is just get in there with the badness and put him with another villain. But even in that case is when you're taking a villain and you're moving them into a romantic pairing, even if, if they're both villains, is they still have to evolve to a degree because most villains are too narcissistic for a healthy relationship. So unless you want to write a lot of dysfunction, they have to grow. They have to be able to Some writers really enjoy else. dysfunction, so, you know. They really do. They really do. And some fandoms really kind of engender this kind of dynamic, but I, they can't just stay static. They can't just be, you know, carbon copies of what we see in canon if they're villains, because it doesn't, unless you want to read about an unhealthy relationship. Um, and some people do. So, and considering you know, how much. big the Hannibal fandom is, I think there are probably a lot of people who really enjoy reading fucked up relationships. Because I'm going to be honest, a normal person can't have a relationship with a cannibal and it not be fucked up. Well, that's very true. But I have to say, not knowing, without speaking to fan fiction at all, because I've read one one Hannibal story, um, and it was funny. I know as you hell. did. Um, <laughs> it was it was funny as fuck. I laughed my ass off. But anyway, um, apparently dark humor really does it for me. But. Um, I'm not surprised. The show, the show evolved both those characters a lot to bend towards each other. Clearly, the writers were shipping it of that show, so that's canon. But they canon, shipped it so much canon. they actually named the pairing on the show. Yeah, murder. Yes, they did. Murder husbands, just so they can let the fandom know what they preferred their pairing be called. <laughs> <laughs> But you shall call them murder husbands. If you look at the evolution of both characters, now if you look at season one, Hannibal and Will, there's no way those two are getting together. It just doesn't make any sense. In my, that's my opinion. It just doesn't make any sense. Hannibal's too narcissistic. Um, he's got he's 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 treating Will like an experiment, and that's not a foundation for. They had to grow towards each other. Will had to become darker. Hannibal had to lighten things up a little bit. For, you know, if, you, if you look at the first episode and you looked at where they ended the show, it, that is a night and day evolution of those two characters. And it's not just one character that evolved. I, I've talked to people about the show who thought that just Will evolved. And I don't know. Hannibal changed a lot. Um, he, went to pr- he went to prison for Will. Sorry, I ripped my headset off. Um, so that's a case of... That's, that's a perfect example of sort of uh, evolving a villain. Um, and you could go that kind of route where you darken one character, you make another character a little bit lighter and kind of have them meet in the middle. Um, but whatever it is, when you take a character who is um, 
has some sort of personality disorder or criminal um, disposition or something along those lines, it, there has to be something. It's just you can't just take them the way they are and stick them in a relationship um, and say, that, well, this is what it is. So um, if the character seems evolved when you're reading a, a story, well, it's because they needed to evolve. And then it becomes a question that it's not so much did the writer do a bad job. as I think some people, um, and, and it, it, without reading a story, it's hard to say, did the writer not communicate their vision well? Um, is this actually the vision that they wanted? Is this the way they saw it? Um, I mean, I've seen, I've seen, you know, writers who want to engage with their readers in the comments um, the readers question the decisions that are making, and I've seen authors be very clear about, well, this may not have been what you wanted, but this is the way I saw it, and this is the way I saw them evolving based upon these changes. And um, ultimately, that decision is the writer's decision to make because, you know, if they're thinking it through and they're saying, you know, based upon, you know, this application of pressure or whatever, this amount of time and pressure, this is what this person is going to look like. That's their vision. That's what they're writing to. And if just because it's not the reader's vision of how that would have gone down, doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't mean they did a bad job or anything of that nature. I would like to say that, that yes, um, an author's... When... Failing to meet your expectations doesn't equal failure for the author. No, not at all. And more importantly, uh, also I want to talk about the the way you move a character from one story to another. It, this is this is this is actually specific to fan fiction because in original fiction, when you're writing a multi-book um, arc on a character, they evolve. But their circumstances don't change. In fan fiction, right. we move characters around into different circumstances, into different relationships, into different situations. And in these situations, they are impacted. And they should be. They, they can't be the same person in every story you tell because none of your stories are the same. And if they are, why are you telling us the same damn story every time? Show me something new. I said before in a podcast that the John Shepard in what might have been would straight up murder the John Shepard in Ties That Bind. There's no way that they would ever have a civil conversation. Because the John Shepherd and what might have been would hear the words, wait, you used a cane on Rodney? <laughs> Let me get my gun. What the fuck? Are you fucking serious? <laughs> and it would be done. That would be it. Because they are so, they are both John Shepherd, but they are not the same character. They grew up in different um, environments. They grew up um, in vastly different family situations. Um, the Josh Shepard and Ties That Bind had a, um, his father and was super supportive, bisexual, um, Adam, very invested in, in John's education and his career, and the 
Rodney and, and, and the John and what might have been was estranged from his father when you meet him and he's having to deal with his father coming back into his life and uh, Patrick coming, uh, you know, coming to terms with um, the homophobia that he was taught um, by his own father and, and coming to grips with almost losing his son because of the ignorance he allowed himself to keep even in the face of being told um, that his son was gay. Because that wasn't the first time that John could have died. That's just the time he almost died in front of his father. Well, he almost died in front of the whole country because it was put on you know, the news and all that. So everybody saw this mm-hmm. video of John taking a bullet. But it wasn't the first time that Patrick Shepard could have lost his son. It's the, t- it's the only time that he witnessed it. He bore witness to a moment where John's life could have been snuffed out. And in that moment, he had to come to terms with the fact that he was responsible for the ginormous rift between them. The decisions he had made, the words that he had used against his own child. And that could have been the last thing he ever heard from his father So they changed. They moved. But the John Shepard and ties that bind John Shepard and what might have been are vastly different creatures. But yet, I do believe that they are the same character. I, when you look at them as a reader, I hope that you see them that they're both John Shepard. They're just John Shepard in different circumstances. So when you move a character, like the secondary character that you're talking about in your comment, um, you're not only moving them out of the shadow of a secondary character position, the writer is also moving them into their own story. There's Their own events are happening around them. And a character should should be shaped by the events that take place around them, the situations they're exposed to, the people they meet, just like you. You evolve and change with your experiences, with your environment. We are some we are we are the sum of our parts. And our parts are our environment, our experiment our experiences, our emotions, what we learn, what we know to be true, what we believe. All these things make us a, a person. And your character on the page needs those things too. Static, um, we've, we've talked about this before, is when we take, like, um, something significant and change it, and then the character doesn't change. And not just the events don't change, the character doesn't change. Um, that's actually a tough read. It's a very tough read when, and I don't usually get very far, honestly, um, <laughs> when there's something dramatically no. different. And the event, and Harry Potter is, is one of the most prevalent examples of this, um, is when the, you, know, you have a change in circumstances, um, and either the first thing you see is that Harry changes, but that the, but the, the way events play out didn't, don't change. That's weird. But that you change an event and that Harry himself doesn't change is also weird, because characters have to, they have to grow. Um, and 
it's sort of like it's sort of like putting a, a, a having Tony be the same um, if he never came to NCIS. I mean, characters are shaped by the circumstances that they go through. Um, somebody actually wrote me recently about the different ways that I portray Tony, um, and, it, and she said, in, in her opinion, that they all gel really well, even though they're all really different. Um, and that's because I spend a lot of time thinking about what this change means, not just for the outcome of events, but for the character. So I think the two biggest departures character-wise for Tony um, are the story I just wrote, um, um, I'll Forgive, um, where he meets up with an old love um, after he's dumped at the altar. And the other was... um, Vicious, where Tony never, where Tony was shot, um, while he as a rookie cop, and he didn't make it in the wasn't a police officer for more than a few months, and went into forensics instead. I mean, that kind of life change where you spend a couple of years having surgeries and learning to walk again, and then you have a completely different career path. Tony would, of necessity, be extremely different to what he would be like in. Um, in canon, and if he's not, then that's I, to me that would be a failure of writing. Is if he's exactly the same. Uh, but that's one of the things. You know, that's one of the things. How how that changes him is something that the author has to interpret. And not every reader is going to agree with me, or with any other author that does this kind of experiment um, about how, how that time and pressure would change that character. But it is, everybody doesn't have to agree. That's <laughs> not that's not the assignment. <laughs> the, the the assignment is not to get consensus. When you talk about um, characters and putting them in different situations, this is this is something that is unique to fandom because you can take one character and tell a hundred stories, and every story's a different place, a different time, a different situation. And those times and places and situations impact your character and they change them. We, we have harped a lot on the Harry Potter fandom for, for situations like, oh, I don't know, all the events of um, the Chamber of Secrets happen exactly the same when he grew up with parents. Yeah, <laughs> or or just fluffy. He he he. he yeah. Just fluffy. He, he goes after the just stone. fluffy. Just fluffy. If if Harry Potter was raised in a household with other magical people, if he was raised by Sirius Black, if he was raised by his parents, if he was raised by his grandparents, which I've never seen done, and that would be interesting. Um, if his grandparents had survived and they'd raised him, I've. I, I've never seen that in, in fandom. I'd be really interested in reading it. So if you have one like that or know one of it and it's not too terrible, I wouldn't mind a link. <laughs> <laughs> but but back to it. If Harry Potter grows up in this situation with magical people, with, with Sirius and a wife or Remus or um, grandparents or even with his own parents, and he goes off to to... Hogwarts and nothing changes about the Philosopher's Stone 
that's bloody impossible. <laughs> it's bloody I mean, at impossible. A minimum, <laughs> at a minimum, he's going to write home to his grandparents or his parents or Sirius and say, hey, when you were here, did they keep a Cerberus on the third floor? Really? How come you didn't tell me? <laughs> at a minimum. This is things I could, this is, this is something that I should have known before school started. <laughs> I think But know, more, but more, go back to the train. Go back all the way to the train. Okay? Serious grandparents, parents, whoever's bringing him through to the train station. He's not going to meet the Weasleys. He isn't going to be no. confused. He isn't going to be a little no. boy that grew up in a muggle world with no friends. He would have been socialized with other magical children. He would know how to get on the damn train. Ron Weasley wouldn't be his only friend. He could already actually know the Weasleys. He could know and dislike them Draco. intensely. And dislike them intensely, especially if I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> he could already have I mean, you know, there's just no telling. There is really literally no telling. Um, even the events on the train would be different. So Neville would be different, absolutely, because if he, you know, it, it, there's every opportunity for Neville to um, engage with Harry. He, he he would be a different child, and Harry would be as well. That they, they would both um, change each other. This is just, you know, that's just the way people work. Real people work. We we evolve and and develop and we uh we borrow from one another, so to speak. Life experiences mm-hmm. and thoughts and opinions and emotions. Um and apparently even energy. But <laughs> <laughs> um but uh it's so there's the the train's different. The sorting is different. This is a Harry Potter who grew up in the magical world. He sees a three headed dog. He's gonna ride home. Mhm. Or, or even before Dad, he sees the three headed dog, he's gonna ride home. After Dad, the there is a hellhound so on the third floor. <laughs> First, he's going to rob and say, hey, the headmaster says if we go to the third floor, we'll all die. What's going on up there? A couple weeks later, dear dad, I went to the third floor. I know you told me not to, but I did. It was an accident. I was being chased by a cat. Um, and uh, there's a three-headed dog on on up there, down there, over there. There's a three-headed dog. Really there's one. a hellhound in Hogwarts. How fast? Would a magical parent have showed up at Hogwarts if their kid wrote home and told them there was a three-headed hellhound living on the third floor? (laughs) Are there any children missing? (laughs) Because if there are, we know whose stomach they're in. Oh, my God. It's... It's stunning because those three can't be the only ones that ended up in that little room. No, you know the Weasley. The Weasley I imagine half the damn there. school Excuse saw me. Fluffy. To half the school saw Fluffy. He was yeah. not a secret. 
Not one of those bastard little bastards wrote home, and I don't buy that for a minute. Not for a hot minute. There's always that one kid that tells their parents everything. Now, Fred and George would not have told their mother, but Percy would have. Oh, yeah. Well, but Fred and George would have known not to tell Percy. The implication being that Percy wouldn't have eventually heard about it. Unless the mail's being censored. Yeah, because that's the, that's the often uh, uh, subplot there that manipulative Dumbledore is is censoring the mail leaving Hogwarts. But with people, with children who have good parents, mail censorship can't go on for very long because if there are kids, these kids' letters aren't getting home. I mean, that's where some plot devices, plot devices can fall apart that, that supposedly fix things. Is if you've got good parents, responsible parents, and your kids aren't writing you, um, and then you write your kid, and they say, why haven't you been writing me? And your kid wrote back, I've sent you four letters. And the mom and the dad, the guy, I haven't got any of your letters. Home. And then I they go home for, for your break. They go home for your break, and the parents are like, why the hell haven't you been writing us? But I did. <laughs> I wrote you a whole bunch. <laughs> There's a three-headed dog on the floor. <laughs> and the troll... I told you about everything. <laughs> there was a it, troll, it, and somebody it, almost died. It, the defense teacher smells like garlic. And... Controlling one child is probably doable. One child without responsible parents. But when you add in responsible parents, a lot of those, the machinations that, that, the, that Dumbledore employed people, or that people use as, as plot devices for him to have employed to control Harry, fall apart if Harry has a family who's looking out for him. Um, I read this crazy story recently where Harry winds up being raised by um, Jim Moriarty and Sebastian Moran, which, to be fair, should be a little sociopath in the making, but he wasn't. But anyway, um, Harry gets hurt I don't remember how he gets hurt. Um, the story is hysterical. It is hysterical. Um, but he gets hurt, and Moriarty and Moran show up at Hogwarts. Um, they figure out how to use the flu here in the in the infirmary, and just give everyone a ration of shit and a lot of death threats. I think there was skinning and eating threatened or something at one point, and um, and then they decide to stay. And no one feels equipped to make them leave. So they just follow Harry to his classes. They just follow him around his classes for several days and glare at teachers. <laughs> oh, and when, when when they go after Snape, I mean, threaten Snape, I just died. I, I won't spoil it, but it is like, it, is, it was hysterical because, and the thing is, is, and Harry just takes all this in stride because he's used to the way his fathers behave. Um, and Dumbledore keeps trying to get these two out of the picture, but it is just, it is just, and Harry's a Hufflepuff, by the way. Um, oh, of course he is. <laughs> in that. So yeah, the kids, anyway, the whole thing is just, it's, it's just, it's bizarre and it's funny as fuck. And Harry's got the two scariest parents in 
forward. And they just feel free to come over whenever they want and just thread the headmaster. It was awesome. Because that's the way, but the funny thing is, that's the way responsible parents act. Is they, and Moriarty is very, because he's very intelligent, he does a lot of research, is when he finds out there's a three-headed dog in the third floor corridor, he finds out, he mentioned, somebody mentions to him, or he reads that, um, Cerberuses are used to guard things. So he stomps up to Dumbledore's office and goes, just what is it guarding? But <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have it in this castle if it wasn't guarding something. What is it guarding? And when he gets the truth out of Dumbledore, he loses his shit because he knows what it is. What the fuck is that doing in school with my son? <laughs> and the thing is, it shouldn't have to be... We shouldn't need Moriarty to behave, be the one behaving like a responsible parent. But it was like one of the best examples of responsible parenting I've ever read in a Harry Potter story. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. Provide a really good example of um, how... Harry being raised by different people would would change him. Um, Perhaps not fundamentally, but it would tweak his personality. He wouldn't be exactly the same. He couldn't possibly be. No, he wouldn't be. I think one of the best things you could do for yourself as a writer or even as a reader to, to um, really embrace the way characters can be changed by a single moment um, is to take your butt over to Netflix and watch a movie called Sliding Doors. What was that? <laughs> yes, I agree. That <laughs> was a noise. Like, sliding Doors. Go, watch. Go watch, watch Sliding Doors. Watch. Um, yes, Sliding well, Doors is a, is a movie. movie about a woman who misses a train and who doesn't miss a train. And you see what happens to her and how she changes and evolves when she misses the train and when she doesn't miss the train. And the difference is astounding that you can see how one moment one event one small thing can change the course of a person's life can change how they respond to circumstances can change can can inspire them to be um to work for something to get out of the situation that they're in. And it's just, it's an amazing thing to see. And I want you to watch it, not from the point of view as someone just watching a movie, but as um, watch it and dissect her character. But she isn't the same. Um, Zan says that she, it kind of ends up in the same place at the end, but not. There's a um there's an immense difference. And 
I think that exploring her character, and the thing is, is I don't even like Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't. But I still find this movie to be one of the best ones I've ever seen for this particular exercise. Um, seeing um, one character uh, move through a whole bunch of events and situations and and yet um, evolve into two distinctly different personalities. It's it's really good. I, I highly recommend that you watch it. It's called Sliding Doors. And it used to be on Netflix. It probably still is. Um, it's got Gwyneth Paltrow in it. And um, what's his name? John, um, John, no, no, not um, John Hanna. Yes, John Hanna. Okay, <clears throat> very good. Uh, but watch it, watch it for her character development. Watch her move through the scenes from two different people, um, and become two different people based on missing the train. And I, it's it's very, it's very good. I highly recommend it. Sliding Doors inspired me to write the, um, the whole concept of Sliding Doors. Um, <sighs> inspired me to write because um, when I was writing Catalyst, I thought, well, what if this critical moment something different had happened, and that's when. Um, I conceived the for you verse and the sliding door of the catalyst verse. So they're, you know, one moment and what is, what, what, what all, what all changes because of that one moment. That is that everything can change because of a single moment. Everything. Sometimes a moment changes nothing and sometimes a moment changes everything. Sometimes in a character event, um, in you take something from canon, um, a butterfly wings, uh, a butterfly flaps its wings in Montana, and there's a hurricane in Japan, chaos theory, yeah, something, like uh, something like that. Um, but the point is, is that uh, that you. The dynamic of a character can be changed in a single minute. What happens if Harry doesn't meet the Weasleys at the train station? What happens if Ron doesn't go with Harry to save Hermione from the troll? Now, I've seen these two things taken in fan fiction and done, and then nothing changes. Nothing else changes. Which, uh, really? Oh. <laughs> but it, it, it must change. It must. Otherwise, it it's just not genuine. You know? Um... 
the fact of the matter is, is because of the canon event, we know that Ron actually performs a spell that takes the troll out of commission. If he doesn't go, um, with Harry, one or both of them could have been injured or killed. Or somebody else interferes. But Harry's relationship with Ron is forever changed because this is, um, this would put the first betrayal, Ron's betrayal, in Harry's first year within a couple of months of them becoming friends. There's no foundation there for forgiveness. At that point, Ron has put himself in the same exact spot in Harry's life as Dudley. He kind of... I mean, he had already been a bully to Hermione, so he was kind of already in that bully role already. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that I think if he had refused to go with Harry to save Hermione, that um, or to warn her, not, I mean, they didn't know they were going to go face a troll, um, right? But to just warn warn her that she needed to go back to the common room, that um, that she uh, that uh, I, I think that it would have cemented it in his mind that Ron just didn't care because he was clearly already a bully. Um, and I think that it would have just definitely um, made that crystal clear for him that Ron was, Ron was just like Dudley. Katie, you you have something that's really, really always bothered me about the Harry Potter series. I always felt like that she foreshadowed Ron ultimately betraying Harry in the last book, Peter Pettigrew, through Peter. I I always felt like he was Peter. He was um, he was the mirror for Peter, and. Over and over again, he betrayed Harry. He he was never the friend he was supposed to be. He was he was always. Um, he's also something of a coward, Ron. He didn't stand up to Trent. He didn't stand up to any kind of controversy. Well, at all. Um, he turned on Harry's drop of a hat. He was jealous. He was resentful. Um, all of his foreshadowing, all of it, and Ron didn't even die at the end. <laughs> I know that is some reader expectation that I had that Joanne didn't meet, but I don't consider it a failure on her part. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> Super disappointed. (laughs) 
okay to be disappointed in something you read, right? I mean, I, or see or whatever. You read it and you go, oh, that's not where I thought that was going. Ugh. Because in some ways, we when we're, when we're seeing things be foreshadowed or as tension is building, if we're enjoying it, we're seeing it build towards a conclusion that we would enjoy. So when the conclusion is something we don't enjoy, like Harry, Jenny, um, we kind of go, <laughs> oh. Well, that's not what I expected. <laughs> and it's okay to be disappointed, but it doesn't mean it's a failure on it doesn't mean it's a failure on the author, writer, producer, director, whatever's part. It doesn't mean it's a failure on their part. It is okay to be disappointed because you want something else, or you didn't enjoy it as much as you thought you would, or whatever. Um, and I think that that is people as I you know I think I think sometimes people act like there's a fine line between bashing and having a preference, and the line isn't actually that fine. Um, if your disappointment, if you can reconcile that your disappointment is your own problem and based upon your expectations that nobody is obligated to fulfill, then as long as you're there, it's okay to be disappointed, and the line isn't that fine. Um, and it has nothing to do with the author. And you should be able to say, I didn't really enjoy this story. It wasn't my ta- to my taste or whatever. Um but Which is people, perfectly okay, but for you to right. assign failure to the author because you didn't enjoy it is not okay. Right. <laughs> the author did all these things wrong, and it's like, well, did they do not it really. wrong, or was it just not what you wanted? Allie, did you mean Snape? Because Dumbledore says repeatedly throughout the series that um, he trusts Severus Snape with his life. Then Snape kills him. (laughs) Now we find out that apparently they all set that up. So it's the ultimate... um, truth in that Dumbledore did trust Severus Snape with his life to the very last moment. He also trusted Severus to do everything in his power to make sure that Drake Malfoy didn't kill him. I wish... I deeply wish that the character of Dumbledore would have been as invested in protecting Harry Potter as he was as invested in protecting Draco Malfoy. Or Snape. Or Hagrid. Or literally anybody in the story. <laughs> but the thing is, is Hagrid, he, he is what he is. And he he he's not a bad person. Right? He's just... Now, Hagrid defended Dumbledore every time questioned. Dumbledore was a great man, as far as Hagrid was concerned. His his, his loyalty was blinding. Um... But 
But you have Dumbledore throughout the whole series protecting and sheltering Snape. And then you have him in book six where Draco is literally plotting his murder the entire book. Granted, the kid is being manipulated and blackmailed into doing it, but he's still doing it. Right? Mm-hmm. He's still doing it. He is still doing this. Um, when by all rights, his parents should have been protecting him, not the other way around. Okay? And yet Dumbledore was still more invested in protecting Draco than he ever was Harry Potter. Which lends credence to the idea that Harry had to die no matter what. That that he was just had written Harry off mentally as a necessary sacrifice. Harry was going to die. And so he was more invested in protecting Draco. So why bother? possibility of a life after the war. And Harry, in his mind, had none. It really lends credence to the idea that Dumbledore was completely reconciled and bought in and committed to Harry's death sooner rather than later. And I say sooner because he wouldn't have kept trying to put all those so many confrontations um, and and wouldn't kept putting um, Voldemort in Harry's path if he wasn't trying to force that confrontation sooner rather than later. Which makes me think the Horcruxes were an add-on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was an afterthought. Oh, well, we need a book it's seven. What are we going to do? I really wish I'd made the school year five years. <laughs> Damn it, it's seven. We're not going back to school. Fuck it. <laughs> They're going camping. I'm sure she did more planning than that. Surely. <laughs> Although she does strike me as a panther. Yeah, some things seem really, some things seemed more plotted out, and other things felt like, well, what are you doing? Was that <laughs> was that a last minute change? <laughs> Didn't see that shit coming. I had a a really interesting thought about Harry and his interactions with Voldemort and how each time the confrontation is, is comes forward, he has to leave who's ever with him behind. In the first one, he has to leave Hermione behind. You know, they only have enough potion for him to go through. In the second one, he and Ron get separated because of Lockhart. So he goes into the chamber mm-hmm. by himself. And the one time he doesn't leave his companion behind, his companion gets murdered. Cedric. Cedric. Yeah. I was thinking about that and I was like, that's just really, really interesting. And I I wondered if she did it on purpose because it's a really interesting moment. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of and, that she did that alienated Harry from adults, um, 
felt very deliberate because it's like, well, yeah, that kid's never going to trust an adult. He's never going to ask for help. He's always going to run, you know. So she set him up in a way from a characterization perspective that felt like, yeah, that's exactly what he would do. Um, and that usually requires deliberation. But uh, you could, some people can dance the hell out of that. Well, what I would also say to um, everybody out there is that pantsing isn't pantsing a novel when you, when you when you get to the end you're not done. Nope. You've still got a second draft and a third draft and you got editing, um, and so even like on your first draft, if you don't have the um, if you don't have the uh, The foreshadowing, um, the event mirroring, the character mirroring that you want to do, um, you can add that in in the second draft. And so plenty of, I think there are plenty of p- pantsers out there who hammer out a rough draft that isn't particularly complicated. And then they go back in <coughs> during the second draft and iron it out. Yeah, I mean, I've... I've said before that the panther and the plotter have to do the same amount of work. It's just a matter of when do they do it. If you're going to produce a novel, um, if you didn't make a timeline, you're going to have to make one when you do your second draft. You're going to have to make sure your timeline's consistent. You didn't, you know, build character profiles. You're going to have to do it either as you go and then make sure check for consistency in your second draft, or write them up at the end and check for consistency when you go through to your second draft. I mean, all that stuff has to be done. You have to know it. You have to be able to check for consistency and internal consistency of the character and consistency in the plot. And I mean, that stuff all has to happen. It's just when does that happen? Does it happen up front? Does it happen later? Now, fan fiction, you can get away I with... would like to say that it should happen. But we should. all know okay, <laughs> that it doesn't always happen. Yes, it's true. Um, and with fan fiction, sometimes it literally it seems like it falls off someone's fingers and it's on AO3 two minutes later. Um, and if they haven't, and the funny thing is, I can tell when I'm reading both a pantser and somebody who hasn't touched their story in a while because it's like either putting a chapter out on the story. I don't follow many whips, um, but sometimes one that hasn't been touched in a year, and the person I can tell that they pants, and then you get a new chapter and you're scratching your head going, did they forget what story they were writing this chapter for? <laughs> I know, right? Like, My favorite work in progress right now is Man on the Wall um, by Casey Starr. It updated recently. Um, I don't know that one. It's Bucky Barnes on Mars. Oh, oh, that one. The one that she had to rewrite because of the plagiarism yeah. concerns, right? It did mirror. It did mirror. Uh, quite a lot, um, and that's the and that's the um, you gotta be careful when you're fusing something like that when you're putting a a character from another fandom into um, the events of a book like The Martian, um, because you run the risk of of, of plagiarism. Yeah, you know, because you don't. I mean, if you don't 
change anything if you just put this character in and then hammer out all the events, boom, boom, boom. Um, you're not really writing fan fiction. You're not writing something derivative. Um, you're just plagiarizing. <laughs> no. Because the Martian actually doesn't... The Martian is a really hard one to do a fusion with, just without having read this other story. Um, just because there's not a lot of um, leeway in what was needed to survive on Mars and so how those events could have played out. Um, so normal, a lot of times when you do a fusion, the idea, this, so there's, there's more, we're talking about like a, a classic fusion where you take a character and you plunk them into a different fandom um, in, in place of the character that would have been in that and let events play out. In this case, that new um, character. Bucky becomes Mark Watney. Um, right. Um, that's the, the, sort of the classic definition of a fusion as opposed to like a world-building fusion, which is more what we do with the Sentinel. Um, but like let's say you take, you know, um, um, the team from, um, you know, Atlantis or Cognizance 1, you take John Shepard's team, and you make them the command crew of the Enterprise in in lieu of um, Kirk, Spock, all of those guys. The difference comes in that is that the characters are different, and they had different life stories, different backstory, different personalities. So events are going to play out differently. Um, and most fandoms, there's a lot of room for things to play out differently. There's some stories that, that because of the necessity of plot, that you plunk a different character in there, and really, you know, you're kind of hamstringing yourself because. The differences you can make are basically in dialogue and internal introspection. So it's um, it's difficult. Uh, that Martian would be a difficult one to do a fusion with. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about it and, and who I would put um, on Mars, um, if not Mark Watney. And I'm actually a big Martian fan. Um, I really enjoy the fandom, and I've... Um, um, read a lot in it, and one of my favorites is um, a story um, that takes place after he's rescued, and he is um, back on um, the ship, and his his <laughs> his logs, um, they're they're NASA um, property, so they're all public domain, so they're having to release them, and apparently. Um, during the course of him being on Mars and being in that habitat for all those months by himself, there were several instances where he walked around naked. So there was like one dude, his whole job was, you know, pixelating Mark's dick in these videos that got released <laughs> to the public. And the best part is that he kind of developed this fandom and people got really invested in his potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and what was happening to him. And they would be tweeting about it like it was a TV show. Because every time NASA would re- release a video, they would all watch it. You know, don't spoil you know, don't spoil it for me. I have to go see it myself. And they got really stupid invested in his potatoes and um, stupid invested in him. And it was a really good fic. I, um, I, I really enjoyed it. But if I was going to put a character um, on Mars... Um, and do a fusion, I would be super tempted to put McKay on Mars. Hmm. Be super tempted. I mean, and it would be like... He's smart enough. Yes. But Although, he's also I, manic. I do think... And it would be really interesting to to take him apart in that kind of situation. And... um. um 
all the bitching he'd have to do about the botany. <laughs> yeah, because a, a botanist is uniquely positioned to survive that situation. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting. The funny thing is, I'm sitting here thinking about um, fandoms develop certain tags that are specific to that fandom. So I just got this picture of you know what the AO3 hash yeah, the AO3 tags would be for Mark's potatoes, <laughs> like tagging it for Mark's potatoes as a favorite character. <laughs> they got really they got really attached to the potatoes. <laughs> But if if you've ever watched The Martian or read The Martian, you know that he, at one point, there's an explosive um, decompression in the hab, and he loses his potatoes, and that's all he has to eat. That's all he has, and um, it's really, it's a really devastating, it's a devastating moment in, in the book when you realize that the precarious diet that he's on is going to get him to the day he can survive is gone. His mm-hmm. plants are dead. And he's not going to get any more out of them. And he can't make any more dirt. He um, he has nothing left to plant. Because he's frozen all of his others, so he, there's nothing left. He has no... No way to go, nowhere to go, and then NASA's um, supply rocket blows up, and he do- and you're just, you know, you know, like in your heart, in your head, he's going to survive, right? Right? You think he is because it's like his story, but in your, it makes your heart hurt. Oh God, it is, it's devastating, and I'm like, I was really invested in the potatoes too. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> the um, you know, the funny thing is for me that, that when the potatoes got 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 you know basically cold boiled, um, and all of the bacteria in the soil got destroyed, and I um, mean when that moment happened, but, well, actually for me, funny, I was I was I had that oh my god, what's he gonna do? But then and, and when he fixes the hab, and all this between him and he's running around in the hab with. Um, basically a plastic tarp and some duct tape between him and Mars. I was so stressed out. <laughs> it's so very stressful. If, if it could happen, it happened to Mark Watney. It is like, I have never, that is actually one of the best examples of author sadism I've ever, ever read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when the ship blew up, when the rocket blew up with his, with his extra food on it, I went, "God damn it, that was just Andy. What's wrong with you?" <laughs> <laughs> I was pointing at my computer, Andy. It's written by Andy Weir, by the way. That's the author's name. What the fuck? <laughs> it was just, it was just one step too far, right? And his his ramble about if I were to write, um, if I were to write. Um, like that story about where there's fan fiction of Mark going on, I I would totally have um, to acknowledge his maritime law ramble because that was one of the best rambles, uh, funny rambles in a dramatic movie ever about how he was a space pirate. (laughs) (laughs) 
and how he colonized Mark Mars. Watney. That's my favorite part. Mark Watney, space pirate. <laughs> Hashtag space pirate. It would go viral when that when that blog got to. <laughs> no, Mark Watney dipped his potatoes in the vi- in the Vicodin. <laughs> he was rationing that stop him. Like a motherfucker. It was just, it's really, really good. But it, um, I, I read that book with my, with my, with my heart in my throat. It was just stunning. The book was a little bit too, I think, I think they did a masterful job of dialing down some of the detail in the book. The book was a little too detailed for me. That's just my preference is that much scientific detail um, doesn't really work for me. But um, I thought they did a really good job of um, dialing, keeping quite a bit, but still dialing down a lot of the um, the scientific exploration of what it would take to respond on Mars, um, live on Mars, to survive for the amount of time he was there. It was very heavy. It's a heavy read, scientifically speaking. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was heavy on the science. Um, which is not my usual preference. So it, I did read it, though. I did read it, um, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I did skim a lot, <laughs> uh, but I love the movie. So, um, And when he looks at the camera and he says that he, he's, he's opening up these Vicodin capsules onto his plate, and um, he's looking at the camera, and he's talking about how he ran out of ketchup, and so he's going to dip his potatoes in Vicodin because nobody can stop him. Um, it just, he just has all these great moments with the camera. Uh, with his video blog or video log. And it was really, (laughs) the fix that I'm talking about where the American public watches his, um, his, his audio video things. I'm not sure if that's the same one that actually has the pixelated dick in it because I've, I've read a whole bunch in that fandom. But the one I'm talking about where the that America basically falls in love with Mark and is, and is worried about his potatoes is called You Know You Have a Permanent Piece of My Medium-Sized American Heart. And it's on <laughs> um, AO3. Um, and it's written by Tricatular, T-R-I-C-A-T-U-L-A-R. Um, I, it, it is, it's a very good read. And, and if you've watched The Martian or read The Martian, um, you should definitely read that because it's, um, it's a gen fic. There's no pairing. It's, um, it's just basically America responding to Mark, um, coming home and them singing his, because during The Martian, his communication with, with Earth is limited to, uh, uh, Texting through an old um, Mars rover, Pathfinder. Yeah. Um, so he's um, he's sending um, messages back and forth, but they're not seeing his face. They're not seeing um, what he did. But the hat has all these video recordings in it, and he's doing these logs. And so when he gets back on the Hermes. Um, that that that's the ship is taking him home. They send all of his data to Earth, <laughs> so NASA's going through Mark's logs, and there's this, you know, Mark slowly but surely loses his mind on Mars. 
And it's all documented. Yeah. <laughs> Every bit of it is documented. Um, I think Matt Damon did an excellent job in the movie of of um, <clears throat> progressing from the moment he realizes that he's by himself on Mars all the way through to the end when um, he is going to get the fuck off Mars whether he lives or dies. Because th- that, that, that's his moment, that he has a one opportunity to live and he has to get off Mars and he um, that's all there is. And but watching him get progressively thinner made me deeply uncomfortable. Yes, I will. For for those of you who haven't seen it and want to see it, his um, weight loss gets alarming. But um, he did not lose the weight. Actually, Matt Damon did not lose the weight for the movie. The it's done with CGI. Um, He offered because he's been willing quite often, I gather, to lose and gain weight for roles um, but the director said it wasn't healthy for him and that they would handle it with CG so um, I think it's actually really good because I was glad when I found out that was CGI because it I was didn't, it's actually done so well it doesn't look like CGI um, no it does not it, it's, it, it's alarming but it, it's actually it's just a really good movie so I highly recommend you watch it um, the character development for Mark is is out of the ballpark. I mean, it's just amazing. It's, it's just great. Stuff. It's great. And the one thing, I mean, the thing is, it's like you wonder, like, where would fan fiction go with this? Um, and we've talked about, you know, usually when there's a really tight movie or really something that's really tightly plotted, is like, where does fan fiction come in? And where it comes in, in this case, and I could totally see it, is the id in all of us wanted the reactions to Mark, uh, for people's reactions, other than happy. Um, we, we wanted, to, you know, to know what happened when he came home. We wanted, to, you know, that's what we wanted to, you know, it's just that part of us that wants to see that he's okay. And, you know, the the falling action in The Martian is steep. <laughs> it, is, it is very it steep. Is, in the book, The Martian ends when he stops being a Martian. Yeah, it's like falling off a cliff. Um, it is. Really a, it is actually. It's a profound um, and very sharp piece of 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 writing um, mm-hmm. that you you hear from Mark while he's on Mars, and the book's called The Martian, and when he stops being the Martian, <laughs> the book ends. That's sad. And it, it, you kind of have your heart in your throat. Because it's like, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's it? That's the end? Oh. But the movie gives you a... a it a gives you closure. Because it sees you, you know, Mark's back on Earth, and um, he's... Uh, Was it like he's a year later teaching, or something? Yeah, he's he's working, working for NASA, and he's... Um, Teaching people how to do what he did. <laughs> Live to tell the tale. But yeah, it does go all the way to him. You see him on the Hermes, and then it skips ahead for a year, and you see him on Earth, um, relaxed and happy and and not crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and able to joke about it. But the book itself it because... is—it's you know—it's—it—it it is a very sharp ending, but I think in a way the ending speaks for itself because it's yeah, a very sharp line between him being Mark Watney astronaut and Mark Watney the Martian. It ends shortly after he's rescued. Um, <laughs> good, yeah, it's good it, stuff. It is. It's it really is, good it stuff. Is, it is, but it is, a, it is a very sharp ending. And because of that, I can see that there'd be kind of this, you know, itchy fingers to go and write. Because um, sometimes you do. Sometimes after. you see something and it's like your fingers itch to go and, and fill in the next piece. Um, and sometimes if something's really satisfying but it ends abruptly, that's, that itch can come in. It's like, okay, I, I really love that. I really just, I, I need to give a reaction. I need somebody's reaction. I, I need to talk about potatoes. <laughs> and <laughs> I have potato feelings. You go, you go and you have potato feelings, yeah. So, um But I honestly, I think there are a lot of things. One of the one of the things um, that can be um, challenging um, when you're fusing something like The Martian with 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 a new character, p- um, putting a new character in, in Mark's place, is the idea that because you're doing this fusion, that you have to let the events play out the same way. And you don't. No. Because there's no telling why the hab failed. Um, you could have because I mean you could have the hab not fail and not have all of his potatoes go to toast. Um and what if it's not potatoes? But that's not what I'm what I'm getting at is that when you're putting someone like Rodney McKay on Mars, think about it for a second. What if Rodney worked for NASA instead of Stargate Command, but Stargate Command still existed. Oh, that's interesting. Right? So, McKay gets stranded on Mars. And the people who are running Stargate Command have to make a decision. Do they let this man starve to death on Mars? Or do they out the Stargate program, bring a gate ship jumper back to Earth from Atlantis and send somebody to go get his ass? Or even if it's, even if it's, so it, I think if it's um, that late where there's gate ships on Atlantis, wouldn't you have the issue of then the public would be like, well, why are you, um, why are we sending all this money to go to Mars when you guys already have spaceships? Um, but if you did earlier in the series, um, but the, but the thing is, to go get him. The thing is, is that NASA is public. The Stargate is not. How could you justify 
ending space exploration for NASA without exposing the Stargate program. Well, true, but I think the spaceships would have been... Most of, well, most of the you, government you, you, wouldn't... Hermes would probably have been built with technology from the SGC. Right, which means it would probably travel faster. Um, mm-hmm. So they're they might be able to try to go there. get him. But the other thing they could do is if they didn't want to out the Stargate program, they could take him food. Oh, that's true. Or have him just sitting on an Asgard ship for a couple of, you know, years. <laughs> Rodney, we can't bring you home. You we can't really out the- fucking healthy right now to have him spent two years on Mars. <laughs> or, oh, what if the public never knows that McKay survived? Oh, ouch. Evil author time. They think that that Rodney died on Mars, but maybe the SGC saves him or the Asgard save him, and they take him to Pegasus. Um, and that's how Rodney gets to Pegasus, right? So where he the, can the never come back from. <laughs> the point I'm making is that you can do a fusion and not risk the plagiarism thing by not being a slave to the original canon of the fusion. You're not required to have all the potatoes die. You're not required to have the rocket blow up. Maybe the rocket doesn't blow up. Maybe because the hab didn't explode. Now, the thing is, is they, they, they rushed the rocket. And there's a mistake made um, when it's being packed, and it causes a destabilization in the rocket, and it explodes before it reaches orbit. Now, the reason they did this is because the hab exploded, and all of his and all of his potato plants died. So he only has enough potatoes to last a certain number of days, and he's going to starve to death. So they rush this rocket, and they take it, they get it from another country, China, I believe. Um, and they rush packing it, and they don't test it, and they put it up into, and they then they launch it, and it fucking explodes. Now they've got a problem. They they don't have another rocket. They can't. They don't have enough time to build one before he dies. And but someone has an idea about flipping the Hermes around using gravity, um, due to their already their um, due to their speed, they would get there in enough time to save him, but he's going to be really fucked up by by the time they get to him. He's going to be almost to the point of starvation. Um, But what if the hab hadn't exploded? If the hab hadn't exploded and his potato plants hadn't died, they wouldn't have had to rush the rocket and maybe they wouldn't have made that mistake and the rocket would have launched perfectly okay and his food would have landed right where they needed it to land on Mars, and they would have had plenty of time to launch a proper rescue mission. Or you could just, you know, you could have, um, the reason why they had that skipped inspection was because um, the head of NASA, Teddy Sanders, he did not want to, 
he wasn't accepting timelines the engineers were giving him. And he said, you can shave off the inspections, right? And people just kept agreeing with Petty. And you saw that actually became an issue in the, um, a little bit, I think a little bit more in the, in the movie, maybe than the book. Um, but it became an issue repeatedly that people did not want to say no to Teddy. What if somebody said no to the guy? What if somebody went over his head? You could have dynamics happening at home that affect the outcome of what's going on uh, and explore those dynamics um, as well that affect the outcome of what's going on on Mars because somebody said no to Teddy and said we have to do the inspections. So there are plenty of ways that you could do this fusion without um, being a slave to the events of the original work. Right, directly mirroring. Because it it is interesting to put another character. One of the things that's interesting about a fusion, the classic kind of fusion, is is to put our put put a a different character in that space and see what is going to be different. Um, Which means you're already, in theory. Um, willing to break away from canon. But if you're doing it and all the events play out the same, um, then I don't understand what the point is. But I've never understood canon-compliant um, fiction, any fan fiction anyway. You know, when I first started in fan fiction, there were three types of, basically three basic categories of fan fiction, and one of them kind of faded away into obscurity. Um, you had canon-compliant, which meant that either you were writing in between canon scenes or you were writing just the emotional and undertones or the thoughts or something, but you were keeping canon events intact. Not that you were writing canon, but you were writing your story compliant with all canon events. Um, So there was canon compliant. There was alternate universe, which meant that canon circumstances are basically preserved intact, but you're making changes that affect canon events. So um, in the case of a canon-compliant NCIS, it would be, um, not canon-compliant, but an alternate universe, would be canon circumstances exist, which is that NCIS exists. um, Conceivably, most of the characters are in their role, but not necessarily all. But that basically, it's the world as it looks like in canon. It's just you're making changes. And then the third category, which people basically stopped using, was alternate reality. And alternate reality was when you were completely changing circumstances entirely. And that is where um, coffee shop stuff came from and uh, um, high school. They, they used to call them on high school alternate reality, and then they started calling them the high school AU. So AU kind of became a fusion. But even way back then, I didn't understand canon compliance fan fiction. Um, it was a mystery to me. I don't, people <laughs> I don't really see like the it. point in it. That yeah. would be the point. I don't really like it, but it never did anything to me. I read it and I go, why am I reading this? Um, I did read one, I think one canon compliant, um, sort of canon compliant fan fiction. Um, they didn't use canon scenes very much. It was back in Exile days. They didn't use canon scenes, so it was all stuff happening in between the episodes. So it didn't really feel like you were getting canon regurgitated. Um, but I remember reading it as a, as a whip and thinking, how long are they going to be able to carry canon? Because they were writing it while the show was on the air. And I wondered how long they are going to be able to carry canon, you know, carry on writing scenes in between canon um, events and having canon events stay intact, especially as the relationship between the two characters got more and more strained. 
um, in canon. And finally, the authors, I don't know, like half a million words in, finally went, oh, fuck canon. <laughs> give up. Fuck it. We give up. We can't make this work anymore. But they, they really they tried really hard. Shark. I have to do Actually, I have to go somewhere else. This is ridiculous. Right. But, um, but they're like, I, they, I don't they tried so hard to make point. it work with canon, and I never understood that level of attachment to canon. Because they already have a pairing that has nothing to do with canon, so I never understood the attachment to the canon event. What, what bothers me most about um, somebody labeling their work canon compliant and then turn around putting a relationship into the story that is absolutely not canon compliant. I think to myself, you lying liar who lies, but more importantly, do you not actually understand what's actually happening on the show? Because anytime someone tells me that their slash pairing in character, I want to punch them in the face. <laughs> because it's not in character for McKay and Shepard to fuck. It is not canon. I enjoy it. I write the fuck out of it. But I acknowledge that anytime I put my characters in bed together, that they are out of character. Because not once during the whole show that I saw in the United States did McKay and Shepard hit the sheets. Now, if you have seen something different than what I saw, I'd like to remind you all that I am waiting on those episodes to be delivered to my house. (laughs) I've asked you before. I'm going to ask you again. If you've seen McKay and Shepard having sex in an episode, you need to send that shit to me. Well, I... I now. think that the, the thing about the canon compliant um, slash pairing, you know, is that they're saying that the canon events don't change, but we're putting this pairing in. Uh, and in some, I have to say, in some fandoms, that works better than others. Because I wanna, I'm, I'm, in I'm, SGA, I'm shooting the bird finger at my screen, but it's not directly at you. Okay, but you can you can flip me off. That's fine. In, in SGA, <laughs> I don't think I don't think the canon events supported um, um, a I thought close friendship but I didn't see really a romantic pairing um, in, 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 the, in, the, in the time in between can scene but Teen Wolf however <laughs> if somebody said to me that it could be canon compliant um, they have, they've written a canon compliant so you know where canon events don't really change but Styles and Derek get together I might go I, I saw evidence of that <laughs> in canon. I can so, support that theory. Um, I can support that theory. Yeah, that happened. So some, some, I'm on board some with that. shows. There's so much chemistry the writers put in between in, into some into some characters, and and, it, and we we actually we we know it's queer baiting. Um, that it's so much. There's so much chemistry written into these into the with these characters' interactions. That if somebody says, you know, this is kind of, I'm, I've written kind of a canon compliant, where no canon events really changed in the first however season, but for some reason Derek and Styles were secretly fucking. I'm kind of going, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, Can Styles at least be grown I, up? <laughs> but I still don't have, he doesn't be grown up. 
Um, but I still, although I did read one, it's like canon compliant, da, 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 but Styles missed a year of school, so he's a year older. And I'm like, so not canon compliant. But, you know. You lying liar but, fucking lies. <laughs> but I just don't understand I can't the point. Of, I just the point of canon compliant. Um, I saw, a, I was reading a story. I didn't realize they were trying to be canon compliant until I got to the end. And the, there's all these changes that had happened. And, and it was over the summer in an NCI story. It was like an over-the-summer thing. All this stuff had happened. And there were all these confrontations. And everybody seemed to be getting – getting everybody's dynamic was changing. And and then all of a sudden, she ends the story. So that's as far as I can take it. Because I feel like I t- if I take Tony to his logical conclusion with this line of, of the story, that events in the next season would have to change. And we know that they can't. <laughs> I was like, I I felt so teased because I had no idea this was a canon compliant writer uh, who apparently all of their stories in their mind happen around canon events. And I just was like, and they trade changed so much, so much in the characters' interactions. And then supposedly um, season eight was going to (laughs) happen. Like, I, don't I just gave my fourth wall office camera a dirty look. <laughs> Someone said in the chat room that Tyler said in an interview that he thought that Derek secretly loves Styles. Um, I've always thought that Joe Flanagan played his character in Stargate like he was Rodney's boyfriend. <laughs> it was like that was Joe's headcanon. I don't think I don't think Derek's love for Styles while it's secret, but okay. <laughs> we'll let you have we'll let you have that one, Tyler. Um, yeah, it sure did look like a secret. But I will say, so I, just because I don't get canon compliant fiction, does not mean that there's not a lot of people who love it and a lot of writers who are very attached to it. Now, some some writers I've talked to because they love it. That's why they write canon-compliant in what we used to call canon-compliant fiction. Um, and some writers um, don't know how to get away from canon. They, they don't know what to do if they're changing things. Like, they don't uh, – it, it's kind of like they're kind of in the, in the formative stages of figuring out how to break away and make little changes. And some, that's, sometimes that's the journey. You start with canon and you make a little change and see what happens. But yeah, it's it's not a from the very beginning. I, if I was like, if I wanted to read canon compliant, I'll just read watch the show. I mean, I right. do watch the show every week. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't see the point of of writing. Um, canon compliant it, it doesn't make any sense to me but that's just me personally and i don't like to read it and please don't send me any fucking links no no i i have to say there's, there's a there's a breadth of stuff that's canon compliant sometimes i read stuff i don't realize is canon compliant because it's happening in between it's happening after an episode or in over the summer or you know over the summer break or it's happening in times so that's one type of canon compliant and then there's the stuff that is an episode and it's just talking about it's just the character's introspection while canon events played out and that for me is something i can't if i start seeing an episode being regurgitated i just because that's not to me that there's no writing in there um the plot you're you're writing thoughts but you're not writing plot 
Um, and it's a, just a little bit too, it kind of, I guess it kind of, and I don't mean this judgy, it's just my read on it, but it kind of pushes my plagiarism button. So, um, because if, if all you're getting is character thought, um, and all the events are, are directly from the show, all the plot in the story is directly from the show, or the movie, or the books, or whatever, um, I, I don't know. To your point. I never quite know. I'm not. I haven't, I haven't quite figured out how what I'm what I'm what I'm supposed to be. Um, I don't. I don't like excessive introspection anyway. So I feel like reading a story for introspection is um, completely outside of my um, completely outside of my preferences. So it, it, it would never be a good fit. For I like myself. an author to answer the question, "What if?" Mm-hmm. And that requires them stepping out of the cannon box and showing me something new. Because we know canon. Well, not not maybe not. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But in, m- most of the shows are the stuff where I write where I read fan fiction. I least, even if I haven't seen it a lot of times, I'll go read the canon. Um, I can only think of one fandom. Um, I read that I don't know the canon very well, but I mean I already know it. Teen and, Wolf, and if I Teen Wolf, Teen Wolf. for me, yeah. I have read some Teen Wolf, but I've no, I've only ever watched thirty minutes of of, of the pilot. I think I've now seen. I've watched episodes. some YouTube videos. <laughs> I've seen a lot of fan vids. That's true. Yeah, if I count fan vids. I've seen like hours. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel really the important the part is well. music. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just like but, the Harry you know, Potter movies. Um, I've never watched them. I've watched the first fifteen minutes of the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone, um, but then I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos. <laughs> I only ever read the book. If you if, if you want canon, it's easy to get usually. Um, you if you if you're reading Teen Wolf and you don't know the canon and you want it, you can go and watch the show. You can go watch YouTube videos. You can do whatever. You can go read up on the wiki. A lot of these shows and movies have wikis that explain everything. Um, so you can you can get it if you want it. Um, so I've just never understood from the very beginning the the you know literally right typing canon like getting you know because sometimes you know I need some lines from canon everybody sometimes needs a line from the script or something but it, you know for me if you've got big copy and paste sections from the script I I'm I'm mystified as to why that isn't it's just not doesn't it's not ringing my it's not ringing my little my fan fiction bell I guess one of my more curious things about fandom is that I wrote in the Sentinel fandom before I ever watched a single episode. Um, yes, that would be The Awakening, uh, which I'm sure would probably just infuriate some of those people even more if they hear this. That yes, I did write The Awakening without ever watching a single episode of Sentinel. Um, but I had read so much fan fiction that when I actually did watch the series, most of the episodes were familiar because I had read a whole bunch of canon compliant (laughs) fan fiction and I didn't even know it. (laughs) So I had actually read most of the episodes with a flash bent. (laughs) So it was honestly kind of surprising at several, like 
several times when Jim would, you know, kind of, you know, grab Blair and push up against the wall. I kept waiting for a kiss because <laughs> it happened. That I was, I've read this episode. There was some hot sex right here. <laughs> That's that's the one. That's another show. That's one of the one of the shows that the writers like. It was like, it was like they wanted us to go there. It was like they were leaving breadcrumbs. <laughs> and so, it, if you've never seen the show, yeah, you can write the episode practically and then tack on sex, and it feels like that's the way it happened. <laughs> that certainly that went down just like that. But I had actually I had read so much Sentinel fanfic that I had actually basically read the whole show because there were several writers in the fandom who only wrote um I guess episode tags and you know uh missing scenes and canon compliant uh uh takes on different episodes. And so I had basically watched them all in my head while I was reading. <laughs> It was honestly by the by the time I got to the end, I was like, I was kind of bored, thinking, you know what, these assholes ruined this show for me because like, I was spoiled completely. Episode tags are kind of a sort of I don't I don't really think of episode tags as being too much canon compliant because I usually assume that there's something interesting enough in an episode tag that canon does not proceed from that point. That things have changed. The, the the episode tag is changing something. Like all those dead air episode tags, you know. I'm assuming that things did not proceed apace. Um, although in some stories they do, it's kind of mystifying. Um, it's like it like it just just glazed it right over. We're down to a minute on our show. Um, it was weird not doing a whole show, not doing a show for a month. Um. And I probably could have done some since I couldn't write, you know, but I didn't want to distract everybody else from, from their writing. Um, so uh I just uh just just sat over here and and, and read Hobbit because <laughs> I couldn't write. <laughs> but um down to thirty five seconds. So say good night, Jilly. Good night everyone. <laughs>